Hi everyone. Hey, it's uh, Mr. Moriarty here. Listen, I wanted to tell you I'm going to be outside recording this summary today. I'm on my deck. It's a beautiful Sunday morning and uh, I just wanted to get out. And so you're going to hear some outdoor sounds, some birds, some scurrying, some things in the background. So that's why you hear those and that's what we're doing. I'm here to give you a little bit of an explanation or a summary, if you will, about uh, Romeo and Juliet's Act 1, Scenes 1, 2, and 3, okay? Uh, you guys know I'm not the kind of teacher that likes to give you something to read and then say, here you go, good luck. Um, I really want you guys to understand and to know what's going on and, and to understand stories. And for me, that's regardless of whether there's going to be a test or whether there's going to be any kind of an assessment. I just think it's important to know and appreciate and understand what is going on in these stories, okay? So first I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the themes that are in Romeo and Juliet, some of the themes that we're going to be talking about. Obviously one of them is love, okay? You've already figured out in the first five lines of Romeo and Juliet, that these two people are going to end up dying because of their love for each other, okay? Um, what I didn't get to tell you, because we hadn't been in class and it wasn't part of my normal uh, uh, introduction of the story, is that this entire play takes place over about two and a half days, okay? So from like a Thursday afternoon to a Sunday, these folks go from meeting each other to being dead, okay? And so I just wanted to make sure that you guys knew and understood that, that, that that's what was going on, okay? That was the time frame. And that kind of helps you understand here what's happening in this play. All right, so love is one of the themes. Also, fate. We talked a lot about fate during our mythology mini-unit. Talked a lot about fate and how people believed fate was um, acting in their lives, okay? Fate will play a role in this play. Um, there's a lot of this element of individuals versus society, okay? Because of their forbidden love, Romeo and Juliet are forced into conflict with the social world around them, okay? And they, tried to, they try to avoid this conflict by hiding, by escaping. Um, they prefer the privacy of nighttime to the public world of day. And we'll get into what that deeper theme means here in a minute. Also, Shakespeare uses a lot of wordplay, a lot of puns in this play, um, so just so you know that, um, light and dark and day and night as symbols in Romeo and Juliet, very, very important. Um, light is traditionally connected with good, dark connected with evil. In Romeo and Juliet, though, that relationship is much more complex. Uh, Romeo and Juliet constantly see each other as forms of light, okay? In the balcony scene, Romeo ju describes Juliet as the sun, while Juliet says he's the stars. But the relationship between light and dark is complicated by the lover's need for the privacy of darkness in order to be together. As Romeo says, when the sun dawns on the morning, when he is banished from Verona, more light and light, more dark and dark are woes, okay? And so basically that's Shakespeare telling us that he thinks that for, for light to really shine, we need darkness. Without darkness, we wouldn't recognize, nor would we appreciate light as much as we do, okay? And I think that's very important to understand um, a lot of famous 
famous people have used uh, light and darkness in other forms. Martin Luther King said, darkness can't bring out darkness, only light can do that. He went further to say, hate doesn't drive away hate, only love does that. This whole idea of light versus dark, love versus hate plays out in a lot of areas of life, okay? And Shakespeare was talking about that back in the early 1600s when he wrote this play. Um, we're going to get into describing the prologue in the first three scenes in a moment. Romeo and Juliet's prologue. Okay, Shakespeare used a group of people called the chorus, okay? When Shakespeare did his plays... Uh, he usually had maybe 15 to 20, right around 15, 20, 25 people in his group that would act in these plays, okay? Remember, I've told you guys all year that uh, during Shakespeare's era, it was illegal for women to be in plays. As a matter of fact, in society, women were not highly regarded at all and couldn't do much. It was illegal for them to be in plays. And so in Romeo and Juliet, Juliet was played by a boy, a young boy, uh, whose voice probably hadn't changed yet and uh, could, could pass off as being Juliet. And so oftentimes also members would play multiple roles, okay? If he, had, um, if he didn't have enough members, he would just have them put on another wardrobe and play a second person in the play. The chorus delivers a 14-line sonnet in which it states the topic of the play, okay? And it talks a little about uh, where the play begins. It's basically your setting, okay? The city of Verona in Italy, there are two noble houses, okay? Two wealthy houses that hold an ancient grudge or that have been battling for a long time. And these battles result in bloody clashes, okay? From these two houses will emerge two star-crossed lovers, one from each rival house, okay? And in doing this, the prologue introduces themes of love and death and individual versus society. And by revealing that Romeo and Juliet will die, the prologue goes further with fate. It literally creates their fate. Romeo and Juliet are fated to die because the prologue says they will. And that's what Shakespeare wanted his audience to understand, okay? Remember, this play is played out in front of a live crowd. It's not meant to be read. It's not meant to be watched on TV. It's meant to be acted out in front of a live crowd. That's why in my class, we were going to do it in the fashion that we were going to do it. We get out of our seats. We stand up. We read it out loud. We appreciate the nuances that come with getting to do that. <clears throat> in Act 1, Scene 1, we meet two Capulet servants, Gregory and Samson, okay? And the Capulet family, you've, you've figured out by now, is Juliet's family, okay? And they brag about what they would do if they saw a Montague. And so we're establishing immediately this feud as the social force in Verona. This is Shakespeare telling us this is going, this is going to be about the feud. Suddenly they see Abraham, who is a Montague servant. Now, Romeo is from the Montague family. Um, they want to fight, but they don't want to start the fight so that the law is on their side, okay? So these are just a bunch of uh, rabble-rousing teenage kids that are out and they want to fight, they want to start the fight, or they don't want to start the fight, I'm sorry, so that the law is on their side, but they do want to fight. What Samson does here is he insults Abraham by biting his thumb. Biting the thumb is... Um, 
very, very similar to an obscene gesture today that we have by showing one of our fingers. And that's as far as I'm going to go on that with you. Um, but what Shakespeare's doing here by introducing this fight is he's telling us that law and honor are introduced as the opposing social force to the fight in Verona, okay? So you've got kids out rabble-rousing, wanting to fight, and then you've got law and order, that good versus evil motif that we've been talking about. Benvolio arrives, and he tries to stop the fighting, and Tybalt arrives and insults Benvolio and all Montagues, okay? Here's how we know who's from which family. Benvolio arrives, and he tries to stop the fighting. Benvolio is one of the Capulet, is on the Capulet side. I'm sorry, is on the Montague side. Tybalt arrives, and he's on the Capulet side. So he is on Juliet's side, okay? And he insults all the Montagues. Soon they're all battling, and Montague and Capulet also try to join the fight, but their wives hold them back, okay? In this scene, it shows the passion of both families. It shows how deeply embedded in this fight they are, in this feud they are, and it establishes Tybalt as a hothead, okay? The brawl halts only when Prince Aeschylus arrives with members of the Civil Watch. That's kind of like a neighborhood watch or uh, a neighborhood police force, okay? When the prince arrives, he proclaims that any Montague or Capulet who disturbs the peace in the future will be put to death. And so we get now, if I have one more instance of, of a fight with you guys, if one more person fights, if there's one more brawl in the streets, we're done. I'm putting you to death. I'm not dealing with this anymore, okay? Later on, Benvolio and Montague are discussing the fight. Lady Montague says she's glad that her son Romeo wasn't involved. Here's our introduction to Romeo. Benvolio says that just before dawn, he saw Romeo looking kind of melancholy, kind of sad, in a grove of sycamore trees, and no one knows why Romeo is sad, okay? And then they see Romeo approach, and Benvolio and Romeo get to have a discussion. What we find out here is that love makes Romeo a loner. He's out of the social world. It also makes him frequent the pre-dawn darkness, okay? And so this is that introduction to that symbolism of light versus dark, okay? When it's dark, seemingly there's no love. Light brings out the love. Shakespeare's really using this idea of love in the dark to signify that that's how you break out of that mindset or that mentality. And though his family doesn't know why Romeo's sad, the play gives us a clue through a bad pun, okay? Listen to this. The kind of tree that they saw him around was a sycamore tree, okay? Sycamore equals sick, the word sick, and the word amour, okay? You've heard the word amour to equal love, sick love, okay? Romeo is sad, because he's in love, and whoever he's in love with doesn't love him. Sycamore. That's the idea of that sycamore tree, guys. Benvolio learns from Romeo that he is in love with Rosaline. We're introduced to Rosaline. I thought this play was Romeo and Juliet. See, what Shakespeare did here was he introduced us to this person named Rosaline who doesn't return Romeo's love. That's called an unrequited love, okay? Romeo loves her. She has taken an oath of chastity, by the way. Uh, it sounds like she's going to be a nun. 
And so she doesn't love him back, and Romeo doesn't know what to do, and he is sick about that, okay? So this is our idea, this is our feeling here that, that we know that Romeo is going to have problems with love all throughout this play, okay? Benvolio, of course, advises Romeo to just find someone else to love. There are many, many fish in the sea. Romeo walks off saying that he can't forget Rosaline. He'll never be able to forget her. Benvolio vows to help him forget her. And, of course, we already know Romeo's wrong. The play's title makes it clear that Juliet is his fate. So, listen, Shakespeare wasn't really concerned with a lot of his plays about keeping the ending hidden or about keeping... What happens in the end of mystery? He's already told us what's going to happen. He's told us that these two are going to die. His basically telling us in the prologue, here's what's going to happen, amounts to him saying, stick around. I'm going to take you on a nice, fun ride as we listen to and watch the story of these two great lovers, okay? And that's what Shakespeare thrived on back when he did his plays. I'll be back soon. Okay, I'm back. Hey, and so the curtain comes up, and we have Act 1, Scene 2. Capulet and Paris, who is a kinsman of Prince Aeschylus, discuss Paris's wish to marry Capulet's daughter, Juliet. We're introduced to Juliet now. And her father is Lord Capulet. He wants her to marry this prince, okay, this, this uh, prince named Paris. Capulet says Juliet's too young to marry. She's not yet 14. And still he urges Paris to woo her and win her heart. So basically he says, Paris, you can have a chance to woo her. You can start to date her. You can start to become somebody who uh, uh, she would like to date. And maybe then we can see if she's somebody that you can marry one day. But right now she's too young. Capulet says that while he does want Juliet to marry Paris, it's more important that she wants to marry Paris. Capulet invites Paris to the annual Capulet Masquerade Ball being held that night. Now, I want you to remember this part of the play really, really well and, and for the whole play, okay? Capulet says that while he wants Juliet to marry Paris, it is more important that she want to marry him, okay? That's going to change throughout the play. That's gonna, that mindset is going to change, and we're going to watch that unfold as we continue to read this. Capulet basically says here he'll give his daughter the chance to accept or refuse Paris's marriage proposal. Yet this generosity from Capulet suggests a deeper truth. If Capulet can give Juliet this power, he can also take it away. Okay, be very careful uh, and remember that. Remember that, that it seemed like Lord Capulet wanted this to happen, but what a lot of authors do now and did in Shakespeare's time, their works were larger pictures of society, in essence, and women in society in Shakespeare's era did not have the opportunity to have their own mindset. They were not told to be free thinkers. They were not told to think for themselves. You'll marry who we say. You'll do as we say. Uh, your status only comes from who your father or your brother is or your husband is. You couldn't marry in and out of social classes and things like that. Very important. Shakespeare's giving us a picture of, of English society at this point, okay? So as they exit, Capulet sends a servant, Peter, to deliver the invitations to the party, okay? 
the masquerade ball. But Peter can't read. And Shakespeare put here this illiterate servant in the play, this servant who couldn't read, treated as a second-class citizen for a reason, okay? Romeo and Benvolio happen along, and Peter asks them if they'll read the list of invitations aloud for him. Romeo reads the list. In thanks, Peter invites them to the masquerade ball as long as they aren't Mar Montagues, of course. And then Peter exits. Well, we already know Romeo's a Montague, okay? But when, when Peter, or when Romeo reads the list, he notices that Rosaline was one of the names on the list. That Rosaline, who he's in love with, was invited to Capulet's masquerade ball. Benvolio says, hey, why don't we crash the party? Romeo can go see that his love for Rosaline isn't anything special. There's probably going to be some other women there you can pick up. You can go meet somebody else. Compare her to these other women, and you'll find out that she's not that great after all. Romeo says, all right, I'll go. But I can tell you that as soon as I go, I'm going to see her, and I'm going to fall in love with her. Okay? And again, we as the audience, we know Romeo's wrong. We've already realized that Romeo will meet Juliet at the party, but this is Shakespeare lining up that fate, okay? Tell, talking to us and getting us to think more deeply about this idea of fate. What is fate? What does that even mean? A lot of folks in this society thought fate was really, really important, and they thought fate was something they couldn't control, and, and Shakespeare is absolutely here exhibiting his control over fate. And the curtain has just come up on Act 1, Scene 3. Just before the masquerade ball, Lady Capulet asks the nurse to find Juliet. Juliet enters, and Lady Capulet dismisses the nurse, then immediately calls her back. The nurse then tells a story about Juliet as a baby, in which the nurse's now-dead husband implicated an unknowing Juliet in a joke. Lady Capulet can't quiet the nurse, but Juliet finally does. Here's what Shakespeare was doing with this Capulet family, and in A, in introducing the nurse to us, and B, having the nurse be such a central, and uh, you'll find later in the play, kind of a strange character, okay? Lady Capulet's fear of talking to Juliet without the nurse present establishes her as an ineffective mother. Her story implies that women, even as infants, are seen as sexual objects in British society, and Juliet's ability to quiet the nurse when mom can't shows her strength. Okay, mom in this story and in, in society, in Shakespeare's view in society, is a figurehead in the family. Not much mothering going on. Okay, just kind of a person that's in the house. Uh, Lady Capulet asks Juliet what she thinks about marriage. And Juliet says, I haven't thought about it much. She's 13 years old. How could she have thought about it? Lady Capulet says, when I was your age, I had already given birth to you. Okay, so Juliet's mother, we find out, was a mother at the age of 13. She then says, Paris wants to marry you. And if you marry him, you will get to share everything that he has. Basically, the dude's got money, the dude's got some wealth, and you're going to get some of that if you marry him. Okay? Juliet's innocence here is visible in her lack of thought about love. She's never thought about it. Uh, Lady Capulet sees marriage as kind of a, kind of in material terms, if you will. 
what you get from being married, how much money you get, how much, uh, uh, what's in it for her kind of a thing, okay? And again, that she married at age 13 shows us society's standards. Juliet says she'll look at Paris to see if she could love him, but she won't look any more deeply than her mother instructs, okay? So I'll give him a glance, I'll take a look-see, but I'm not going to go any more deeply than, than, uh, than you think I should, Okay? Juliet uses here a lot of wordplay to make resistance sound like obedience. She'll do what her mother asks, but not much more. That's uh, Romeo and Juliet, Act 1, Scenes 1 through 3. That was the assignment uh, for this week. I give this to you in kind of uh, smaller doses so as not to overwhelm. And so uh, next week's assignment, we'll go on, give another summary after those um, questions are answered. If anyone has any questions or anything that they were unclear about after this explanation, please email me. Uh, feel free to email myself or Mrs. Pearson. We will be more than happy to answer any questions that you have, clear up any understandings. And once again, guys, thank you for going through this experience uh, with us as we are attempting to online instruct and keep everyone's instructional importance going and keep the value of your education going and doing the best that we all can. So thank you all for your hard work. Stay safe and uh, there's more to come.